Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. And I'm your other host, Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And welcome to the 212th episode of the Nauticast, titled The Hole Inside, an analysis of A Storm of Swords, Arya 12, in which Arya and Sandor ride around the middle of nowhere while she gets depressed and he gets drunk. That's it. Episode over. Thanks for listening. Uh, we should have done some method podcasting for this one. Do you want to be the sad girl or the drunken brute? Well, I'm always sad, so maybe I'll try drunk. <laughs> try that just for a change of pace. Our spoiler winning, as always, prepare to be spoiled for all five A Song of Ice and Fire novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, any histories, interviews, Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon, the TV shows. Anything and everything. Our question this episode comes from our patron, Kevin. You guys are doing such an awesome job with this podcast. Your analysis is just joyful to listen to. When I first encountered Game of Thrones, it was at a library book sale in 2004. The copy I found was a first edition hardcover with a broken spine. There is no mention within the text or on the cover of any plans for additional novels, so for two read-throughs of Thrones, I thought of it as a standalone novel. It was 2004, we didn't even have YouTube yet. I was amazed by this vignette into this living and breathing world. It was intoxicating to read, and the ending was a promise of possibilities. As a result, every novel or short story we've gotten since then has felt like a gift to me. Another glimpse into the world. Do you believe Game of Thrones works on its own as a standalone novel? How do you think this perspective could inform our understanding of the series if it ends with dance? Wishing you all a happy and exciting new year, Kevin. P.S. I still have that first edition, broken spine and all. That's great. Thank you so much for the question, Kevin. Yeah, I like the, the, the comforting, therapeutic idea of thinking of Game of Thrones as a standalone novel. And really, everything we've gotten since, however much of it we get, is just a gift. I gotta, I gotta think that way from now on. What do you think of uh, a Game of Thrones as a as kind of a standalone? Like, imagine if, if things had, had stopped there. Yeah, um, I, I think it absolutely does, at least in terms of it feels like most characters go through a complete journey at one level or another. Um, mm-hmm. And the threads it leaves you with that lead into A Clash of Kings and beyond, um, I feel like could theoretically be things that could be left open, like an intentionality in terms of leaving those open for the reader to decide what happens next. Um, I I have the privilege of being obsessed with the Metal Gear Solid games, with which are all about open-ended <laughs> endings. So I'm like used to that. That's true. Um, but, you know, in the same way that, say, you know, Star Wars and you hope, like Darth Vader flies away, the Empire is not defeated in full, um, and clearly the heroes are going to go on more adventures, um, but it still works completely as standalone. And I think... Um, the first of a series generally has that ability to be standalone in ways that everything after it cannot be. Um, so, but I do think it works. I do think there's a complete story there. Um, you know, something like Feast, which I love, does feel more like half a story. And that is, you know, kind of intentionally like half of a story in the way George decided to break it. But a Game of Thrones, it really feels like a complete journey for all the characters that are focused on and some of the ones that are even kind of backgrounded or secondary in that sense. Um, the trickier question is, what do we do if this is all we get with dance, right? <laughs> um, and like, yeah. um, I still think... Uh, it's great. Like, even if the book series is never finished, it's still great. Um, and there's enough of a story there for me to sink into. Um, but um, it is kind of we're in the middle of a act, really. Um, so we got like an entire first act, as we've been describing with the first three books. But it feels like we're still missing the back half of act two with the Winds of Winter. Um, but, you know... Sometimes art doesn't get completed and we just have to deal with it as it's presented or it's heavily, you know, influenced by outside factors, whatever it might be. Um, it's just kind of part of making art is that sometimes things aren't finished. But um, I do think 
there is strong enough work in the existing five books that it can stand up as its own thing if it has to. I just hope it doesn't have to. <laughs> exactly. Agreed. It's much more frustrating after five than it would have been after one. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I agree. I was thinking about it and there were a lot of there's a lot of stuff at the end of the first book that could just be evocative, like Rob becoming king in the north mm-hmm. or Danny with the dragons. Like that could just be like this isolated thing of mystery. Like who knows what the world could be after that. It's beautiful. And it's still one of the reasons it works so well is because you still I think feel that way rereading that those scenes, even when you come back to it, knowing there's more. Uh, I think there's obviously a certain overarching stuff that wouldn't be satisfying, like with the White Walkers. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's still not satisfying now. There's still so much, of course, <laughs> that's left to be resolved with that. Um, that would like stand out, obviously, like a sore thumb if it, if it never went going. But yeah, the first book, there are there are elements of it that I think were never really recreated, like the Ned Robert that very specific relationship is, is something that's really well done that I think is never. There are other great relationships, friendships in the series, but that that very specific, like we used to be the best buds, we had the time of our lives, and now it's a little later, and we don't quite have it together. I think George captures that really, really well. And I think uh, as someone who is aging beautifully into my mid-30s, I think, <laughs> I think yeah, that's the age, of course, Ned and Robert and Cersei and Jamie and all those cattle, and that's when everyone is at the beginning of that first book. And I think he captures that spirit of looking back on, on what you were when you were 20 and your life was glorious and you were the characters from Dazed and Confused. I think he captures that uh, really well. And that's, uh, you know, all the Robert's Rebellion uh, veterans get their time in the spotlight to talk about the trauma, as we talked about with Jamie in this mm-hmm. book and many others. But yeah, that's something in the first book that is it has to be self-contained because Ned and Robert both die in the first book. And so it doesn't, even as I love uh, more so some of the stuff he got up to in later books, I think there is something special to, to Agot that got people hooked in and mm-hmm. I think still stands on its own. And especially because a lot of people discovered that book before it was huge. Uh, you know, Dance with Dragons kind of came out as, as it was becoming huge. So yeah, there's still just great stories of people of people having having those early copies back when it was just a thing in fantasy and not a thing for everybody. So thank you so much to Kevin for the question. If you want to ask us questions, we are forced to answer here on the Notacast podcast. You can head on over to patreon.com slash Notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where patrons get benefits including uh, early access to our regular episodes and exclusive episodes every month. But we are here today to talk about a Storm of Swords Arya twelve. So let's, uh, I guess, let's jump back. Into, I guess let's jump into the synopsis. Ugh. It's going to be a hard one. She could feel the hole inside her every morning when she woke. It wasn't hunger, though. Sometimes there was that too. It was a hollow place, an emptiness where her heart had been, where her brothers had lived, and her parents. Hey, good news, Arya. Your brothers are still alive. Well, some of them anyway. Not Rob. He's dead. He's he's very dead. I'll uh, I'll just show myself out. Arya is in physical pain as well. Her head still hurts from when Sandor hit her with the flat of his axe, but at least that pain is gradually going away. The pain inside is sticking around. Arya doesn't even want to wake up in the morning. She prefers to sleep and dream of running with a wolf pack that, unlike her human family, will never leave her. But if her nights were full of wolves, her days belonged to the dog. Sandor Clegane made her get up every morning, whether she wanted to or not. He would curse at her in his raspy voice, or yank her to her feet and shake her. Once he dumped a helm full of cold water all over her head. She bounced up, sputtering and shivering, and tried to kick him, but he only laughed. Dry off and feed the bloody horses, he told her. And she did. Wait a minute. Horses? Plural? (laughs) Yep, along with Stranger, they now have a palfrey mare they found riderless in a field the morning after the Red Wedding. Arya names her Craven because the horse ran away from the massacre. Okay, I would probably name her Smart Horse or something (laughs) like that instead, but I'm no good with names. At least Arya gets to ride her own horse now, and she thinks that she might be able to escape when Sandor's not looking. But she never does, because where would she escape to? 
Winterfell has been burned down, River Run still stands, but it's held by the Blackfish now, and Arya has never met her famous great-uncle. She's not sure Lady Smallwood would take her in even if she could find Acorn Hall. Arya does consider rejoining the Brotherhood, but thinks that they weren't her pack either, nor were Gendry and Hot Pie. So Sandor it is, although he refuses to tell Arya where they're going now. Away, he said. That's all you need to know. You're not worth spit to me now, and I don't want to hear your whining. I should have let you run into that bloody castle. You should have, she agreed, thinking of her mother. You'd be dead if I had. You ought to thank me. You ought to sing me a pretty little song the way your sister did. Did you hit her with an axe too? I hit you with the flat of the axe, you stupid little bitch. If I'd hit you with the blade, there'd be still be junks of your head floating down the green fork. Now shut your bloody mouth. If I had any sense, I'd give you to the silent sisters. They cut the tongues out of girls who talk too much. Sandor Clegane, everyone. He'll save your life, but he'll also be a total dick about it. The truth is that Arya is so depressed that she barely talks at all. And neither does he, though in his case it's less depression than rage. He takes it out on the firewood, which is good, but he winds up chopping so much that he passes out before actually making a fire with it, which is bad. Arya thinks about turning that axe on Sandor instead, but as with her escape plans, it just never seems to happen. It's not like Arya has anyone else to hang out with. Her despair runs so deep that the people they pass on the road seem like a different species to her. And besides, it's not just civilians out there. Frey soldiers come hunting stray Northmen, forcing Arya and Sandor to keep their heads down. Eventually, they stumble across one of those stray Northmen. Well, not technically. He's a soldier in service to House Piper of the Riverlands. Or at least, he was. His left shoulder was all twisted and swollen where it met his arm. A blow from a mace, he said. It had broken his shoulder and smashed his chainmail deep into his flesh. A Northman it was, he wept. His badge was a bloody man, and he saw mine and made a jape. Red man and pink maiden. Maybe they should get together. I drank to his Lord Bolton, he drank to Sir Mark, and we drank together to Lord Edmure and Lady Rosalind and the King in the North. And then he killed me. Aw, too bad. Now Red Man and Pink Maiden will never get together. I hate getting drawn into a will-they-won't-they romance only for the show to get cancelled. Thanks a lot, David Zosloff. The man asks for wine, but Sandor says they have none. It's not like he's sober by choice. Sandor offers water and mercy to the man. Arya provides the water, and Sandor provides the mercy, slipping his dagger into the man's chest. As he slid the blade back out and wiped it on the dead man, he looked at Arya. That's where the heart is, girl. That's how you kill a man. That's one way. Will we bury him? Why? Sandor said. He don't care. We've got no spade. Leave him for the wolves and wild dogs. Your brothers and mine. He gave her a hard look. First we rob him, though. <laughs> Mentor of the year right there. <laughs> Sandor takes the man's money and gives Arya his dagger. They ride on eastward toward the Mountains of the Moon. Finally, Sandor tells Arya where they're going, off to see Rich Aunt Lysa in the Vale, on the off chance she might want to ransom her niece. Arya is, let's say, less than enthusiastic about this. We should go back, she suddenly decided. We should go back to the twins and get my mother. She can't be dead. We have to help her. Thought your sister was the one with a head full of songs, the hound growled. Frey might have kept your mother alive to ransom, that's true. But there's no way in seven hells I'm going to pluck her out of his castle all by my bloody self. Not by yourself. I'd come too. He made a sound that was almost a laugh. That will scare the piss out of the old man. Well, I don't know, it might. It depends on whether or not he's seen season 7 of Game of Thrones. Arya goes to sleep that night thinking of her mother, and then she starts dreaming about her. Arya, slash Nymeria, smells Catelyn in the river, one of many corpses clogging the water. The other wolves crowd in close, feasting on the flesh. Arya, slash Nymeria, is hungry too, but focuses on Catelyn's scent, and finally sees her body drifting downriver. Arya, slash Nymeria, swims after the corpse, bites into it, and drags it to shore. But then, some men on horses show up, and the wolves are forced to run for it. 
When morning came, the hound did not need to shout at Arya or shake her awake. She had woken before him for a change, and even watered the horses. They broke their fast in silence, until Sandor said, This thing about your mother. It doesn't matter, Arya said in a dull voice. I know she's dead. I saw her in a dream. The hound looked at her a long time, then nodded. No more was said of it. Phew, you think I'd be out of room for heartbreak in these Arya chapters after, you know, the Red Wedding, but nope, that bit still gets me. As the dynamic duo climbs higher into the hills, they find a village, and Sandor decides it's time to seek out food and shelter. It turns out the villagers are building a palisade and could use someone with those big Clegane muscles. That's the good news. The bad news is it turns out there's no safe way to get into the Vale. Snow has begun to fall higher up, and the clansmen have returned with steel weapons. Who could have given them those? It was quiet in the village. They had beds stuffed with straw and not too many lice. The food was plain but filling, and the air smelled of pines. All the same, Arya soon decided that she hated it. The villagers were cowards. None of them would even look at the hound's face, at least not for long. Some of the women tried to put her in a dress and make her do needlework, but they weren't Lady Smallwood and she was having none of it. And then there was one girl who took to following her, the village elder's daughter. She was of an age with Arya, but just a child. She cried if she skinned a knee, and carried a stupid cloth doll with her everywhere she went. The doll was made, to, was made up to look like a man-at-arms, sort of. So the girl called him Sir Soldier, and bragged about how he kept her safe. Go away, Arya told her half a hundred times. Just leave me be. She wouldn't, though, so finally Arya took the doll away from her, ripped it open, and pulled the rag stuffing out of its belly with a finger. Now he really looks like a soldier, she said, before she threw the doll in a brook. Maybe the least subtle moment in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. What could it mean? With no way into the Vale, Sandor suggests that they stay in the village until the weather improves. The locals might need him to defend against the clansmen. Unfortunately, said locals disagree. There is not enough food to go around, but more to the point, they know who Sandor is, and they think he lost his courage at the Blackwater. They pay him with copper, a very used sword, and some ale he drinks before they're even out of sight. We'll make for River Run, he told Arya as they roasted a hare he'd killed. Maybe the Blackfish wants to buy himself a she-wolf. He doesn't know me. He won't even know I'm really me. Arya was tired of making for River Run. She had been making for River Run for years, it seemed, without ever getting there. Every time she made for River Run, she ended up someplace worse. Poor kid. Just trade places with Jamie. He can't seem to stay away from River Run. <laughs> Arya suggests that they go to the wall instead. Sandor's laugh was half a growl. The little wolf bitch wants to join the Night's Watch, does she? My brother's on the wall, she said stubbornly. His mouth gave a twitch. The wall's a thousand leagues from here. We need to fight through the bloody phrase just to reach the neck. There's lizard lions in those swamps and eat wolves every day for breakfast. And if we did reach the north with our skins intact, there's ironborn in half the castles, and thousands of bloody buggering northmen as well. Are you scared of them? she asked. Have you lost your belly for fighting? For a moment she thought he was going to hit her. By then the hair was brown, though, skin crackling and grease popping as it drifted down it, as it dripped down into the cook fire. Sandor took it off the stick, ripped it apart with his big hands, and tossed half of it into Arya's lap. There's nothing wrong with my belly, he said as he pulled off a leg, but I don't give a rat's ass for you or your brother. I have a brother, too. And that is A Storm of Swords, Arya 12. What did you think of this one, sir? Uh, what does Gimli say in the two towers when they arrive at Edoras? You'll find more cheer in a graveyard. Uh, yeah, that. <laughs> Good lord, this is a bleak, bleak chapter, even if you account for the first-time reader feeling some relief to see Arya again after the Red Wedding. We move beyond that hinge of narrative in A Storm of Swords, but Arya hasn't. It's still a giant hole in her heart, or perhaps a giant lump on her head. The thing is, for the rereader, 
This is somehow even bleaker. The most consequential moment, Nymeria pulling a dead Catelyn Stark from the river, is only going to lead to bad, vengeful things. Another wave of extremist violence unleashed on the Riverlands. Uh, pass me the wine, will you, bud? I finished it off. Can you blame me? Who wants to be sober for this shit? <laughs> yeah, this isn't just a chapter in which nothing happens. It's a chapter about nothing happening. It's about what it feels like when you have no goal left, nowhere to go, no one to be, no reason to keep going other than the asshole who kidnapped you is forcing you to. Like we always say, the form matches the content. Arya 12 is a deliberately shapeless chapter, in contrast to the last couple Arya chapters, which were defined by their momentum, everything building up to the Red Wedding. Now George has taken all that energy, that desperate hope and dread, and driven it into a brick wall. This chapter takes place in the rubble, and it's a great example of plot taking a backseat to character. It's been a long time since we checked in with Arya, but within a couple of paragraphs of rereading this chapter, I'm locked right back into her headspace. That's just how emotionally powerful it is. Yeah, a bifurcation is happening within Arya, a fraying that begins with Ned's beheading and was torn apart at the Red Wedding. A tension of opposites. Her physical body is healing, but the pain inside isn't. Her waking life is lonely, dour. Her dreaming life, her wolf life, is full of action and family. Arya was someone, but she's quickly becoming no one. Because the people who made her someone are all gone. The only people left to her are relatives she's never met and never known. The thought of fleeing her captor barely entices her anymore, even. Again, where does she go? It's a state of mind all too familiar to anyone with depression. Or anyone who's been around someone with depression. It's not even pain, because at least that would be something. Depression is an absence. The world feels empty of meaning and purpose. As Arya puts it, it's a hole inside. The part in this chapter where Arya looks at other people like they're just aliens now whose lives have nothing to do with her, that's it in a nutshell. Same with Arya preferring her dreams to reality. That's a symptom of depression, even for those of us who aren't wargs. I mean, the classic depressive symptom is staying in bed all day, and that's where Arya's at right now. Depression is insidious because it cuts you off from any solutions to it. You're stuck in this position where nothing means anything, so you don't want to do anything, which guarantees that nothing will ever mean anything. It's easy to fall into this trap where you're, you're waiting for things to get better on their own, and one day I'll just wake up and the world will mean something to me, then I can do things in it. The hard truth is you have to fake it until you make it. You have to force yourself to do things again and again until you get some momentum going. Purpose arises from activity, not the other way around. But Arya's really not in the position to do that right now, and even when she gets away from Sandor, she winds up working for the Faceless Men, who do engage her in daily activities again, but only in the name of erasing her identity and sense of purpose entirely, becoming the ghost she kind of feels like in this chapter. Speaking of ghost, uh, let's take some <laughs> stock of the remaining direwolves and the roles they play or fulfill with their star counterparts. John, in the last chapter, was feeling the absence of Ghost, a symbol of his identity, and it will be the return of Ghost that grants him clarity of purpose by book's end. Summer, in a very literal sense, is the legs Bran doesn't have, the ability to sprint and hunt and defend himself in a way not afforded to his human body anymore. And with Arya, the pack fills the need of family, of being with her own, with those who will fight for her and whom she will protect in turn. Bran has his little traveling crew, and Jon has his brothers at the wall. Arya has Sandor Clegane, a drunken brute on his best days, and just a brute on others. And mm -hmm. even he doesn't care what she does, really. Yeah, we've been talking about the Arya-Sandor dynamic for her last few chapters, but this is really where George brings that relationship to the front, because there's basically nothing else going on. 
What struck me on reread is that Sandor is simultaneously helping Arya out of her depression and forcing her further down into it. Like on one hand, he makes her get out of bed every morning, and she really does need someone to do that to keep her engaged in the real world. Keep you grounded in routines, physical activity, you gotta get up, feed the horses, you don't get to just lay down and wait to die. On the other hand, there's Sandor's actual personality, which could convince the happiest person in the world that there is nothing worth living for. He's insulting, sarcastic, cruel. Arya thinks that she's too empty and he's too angry, which is, yeah, exactly the problem. She's out of emotions, and he's letting his emotions rule his decisions. I love the bit where he chops up so much firewood that he's too tired to actually make a fire with it. It perfectly captures the way Sandor sabotages himself, the way his strength turns inward and becomes a weakness. He can't actually take care of her. He can't provide the warmth she needs, both figuratively and literally. George sums up the relationship when they talk about what happened at the end of the last Arya chapter. And like I said, the first time we read this, we're just relieved that Arya is alive, that Sandor didn't kill her. Instead, he saved her. Sandor was right that if he had let Arya run into that castle, she would be dead right now. He made the right call by knocking her out, dragging her away. But even as he points that out to her, he's calling her a stupid little bitch and telling her to shut up. Which, as she points out, is totally unfair because Arya is barely talking at all. So that's not going to help Arya's <laughs> mental and emotional state. It's only going to make things worse until she ends up like Sandor, which is a big part of their relationship, Sandor as a cautionary tale. Without the pack, the lone wolf will become the dog, the broken man. Arya's hidden behind other names and faces, and now she wants to be no one. When Sandor puts on his helm, the man fades and the hound emerges. That's exactly how George wrote it at the Red mm -hmm. Wedding. Mm -hmm. At the end of the chapter, Arya wants to go to John, her last brother, or so she thinks, someone who will recognize her, know her, which neither Lysa nor the Blackfish can do, which is why she doesn't really want to go to them even if they would take care of her. But Sandor won't take her to the wall, and there are plenty of logistical reasons why, as he says, the wall is a long way away, and there are plenty of enemies of all kinds between here and there. And yet George doesn't end the chapter there. He ends it with Sandor saying he doesn't care about Arya's brother, because he has a brother too. And look how that turned out. For Arya, her brothers are a source of security. She loved them, and they loved her, their home for her. For Sandor, it's exactly the opposite. His brother was the one who took home away from him, made it a place of fear and pain, and also lies. If Arya loses her ties to home and family, if she gives up those memories because they're so painful in context with her losses, she'll become just like him. And neither of them really wants that. With Jamie back in the capital and Catelyn... Well, we'll get to Catelyn. <laughs> Arya is the last Riverland point of view standing in A Storm of Swords, and she herself will depart at the end of the book. But A Feast for Crows will deal heavily in the Riverlands, and these last couple Arya chapters give us an idea of what's going to be on that feast agenda. The Freys are doing a Red Wedding mop-up, finding any survivors and dealing with them accordingly. The Red Wedding went down at the Twins, yes, forever indicting the phrase, but what exactly transpired between the other houses, specifically the Boltons, is not common knowledge yet, and the Boltons and Freys have incentive to keep it that way as they attempt to seize power in the Northern Kingdom. This is what feudal information control looks like. Another theme that we'll see rise up in the next two books is infighting across all the kingdoms, and even beyond to Marine. The Manderleys and Boltons up north, the Greyjoy uncles in the Iron Islands, Doran vs. the Sand Snakes and Ariane, Littlefinger in the Vale. Rule across each of our settings is going to come under the author's thumb going forward. This random Piper Archer gives voice to that, talking about being killed by someone he was drinking and feasting with right up until the knives came out. 
And speaking of portending a Feast for Crows, we witness Sandor give the gift of mercy to the Piper Man as the girl who will become Mercy watches. I was thinking a lot about the line, that's where the heart is, girl. After this chapter opened with Arya describing the hollowness, the hole inside where her heart should be. That may be where the heart is for most people, but Arya's heartless, or perhaps her heart is hard as stone. Wait, wait, no, I'm getting ahead of myself here. (laughs) Definitely not a subtle metaphor for George, nor should it be. It's pretty central to what's going on with with Arya's story right now, so he doesn't want you to miss it. She's losing track of where the heart is. Because the heart is where you're vulnerable. It's where you can be killed easily. It's where the mercy goes in. And we see mercy and violence tied together here as they were at Stony Sept when Arya gave the, the mercy of water to those men in the cages and then Angai gave the mercy of a swift arrow to the ribs. Arya doesn't want to be vulnerable anymore because it only seems to lead to pain. Just look at this guy. He trusted someone, a soldier who seemed like he was on the same side of the war. They were drinking and laughing and then the knives came out. And it didn't matter how unfair it was, how much he didn't see it coming, this guy's dying for it. So what do you think, Arya? You want to be like him? Or do you want to be like Sandor? It's the Red Wedding in miniature, bringing Arya back to that traumatic moment in order to force her to decide how to deal with it, how to live with it, because this guy's not going to have to live with it for much longer. And George lingers on on the physical details, the intimacy of like the guy uh, licking the helm to get all the water he can to really make you feel how Arya feels in that moment and how it feels to see Sandor's, almost his tenderness when he slides the blade in, immediately followed by callousness. <laughs> Who cares about burying him? We gotta rob him. His practical realities are replacing her stubborn ideals, what's left of them anyway. And as I read it this time, I realized it, it calls back to Jock and Hagar, her mentor in the last book uh, at Harrenhal, wiping that, that heart's blood on Arya's clothes as a mark of how she spent her three wishes. All of Arya's mentors, uh, particularly the faceless men, show her different sides of death. What it does to your heart, what it does to your face, what it does to your whole damn body and soul in Beric's case. All through these last couple of chapters, I made a habit of calling out how George is resolving or calling back to plot beats from the beginning of the story, whether invoking the Winterfell Feast last chapter or in resolving the Cat's Paw and John Aaron mysteries, that last one yet to come. This one here might be a stretch, but Arya telling Sandor, we should go back, immediately pinged the story's opening lines from the Game of Thrones prologue, we should start back. Yes, we all want to go back to the way it was, before all the bad things happened. We all want Arya to have her mom back too. And well, <laughs> well, I'll admit it. I totally missed what was happening with Arya's wolf the first time I read this. I mean, I kind of got it, but kind of didn't. But I was in no way prepared for Nymeria's corpse fishing to result in, you know, what we, what we would see in the epilogue and A Feast for Crows. I'm pretty sure I even forgot this scene happened by the time I first turned to that A Storm of Swords epilogue. Passages like that are always the most fun to revisit, because you can see how George was giving you breadcrumbs the whole way, while also being able to revel in his own imagery, especially the sensory overload of the direwolf point of view, which we've talked about at length in previous episodes. Like you say, this is the only real plot point in the chapter, and even then, the first-time reader doesn't know how important it is until the end of the book, literally the last paragraph of the book. In isolation, Arya's dream just feels like an extension of the bad vibes in the rest of the chapter. The smell of decay, the feasting on corpses, sensory overload, like you say, it's this this full-on immersion in the Riverlands as what it is post-Red Wedding, a mass, watery grave. It's been a while since we checked in with Nymeria. Arya's earlier wolf dream was just set up for this one, which sticks in the memory just because of how vividly gross it is. All the smells and tastes, flesh gone ripe in the water and the sun, and that's deliberate. 
George wants your stomach churning to consider Nymeria's position in all this, and, by extension, Arya's. The direwolves are positive forces for a Stark POV, of course, sent to guard them, embodying family and home, the pack. But they're also associated with violence and vengeance. And like the dragons, they're also just still animals, part of the predator-prey dynamic of nature. So when Nymeria finds Catelyn's corpse among all the others, drags her up on shore, what she asks for, what she prays for, is that Catelyn will rise and eat with us, join the feasting crows, which is more or less what she does. Lady Stoneheart becomes an avatar of death, another avatar of death for Arya, and I like the idea that Arya is the one destined to kill Stoneheart again, because she's the one who made it possible here, this version of her mother driven only by her own personal kill list. In the moments in this book, it just convinces Arya that her depression has won. Her mother is truly very, really dead, and there is no reason not to surrender to despair. And this is the moment where Sandor tries to comfort her. Probably my favorite part of the chapter when he just goes mm -hmm. very uncomfortably, this thing about your mother. Great example of how well George writes Sandor as a non-POV character. We don't know exactly what he was going to say because Arya cuts him off, but we basically do. He was thinking about what she said, clearly it bothered him, and he was about to say something like, I lost people too, and you gotta just keep going. It's powerful because it's an unexpected tenderness under Sandor's rough exterior. Same as we saw with Sansa at the Blackwater. But it comes through differently because Sandor's relationship with Arya works differently. Sansa for Sandor is the, the projected ideal, the character from the stories and songs brought to life. Arya though, Arya reminds Sandor of himself. Hence his grudging respect for her toughness and persistence, at least you look me in the eye. He told Sansa that she was hopeless because she, she wasn't hard enough to make it in King's Landing, the city of liars. But that's also what drew her to him. It's why he saved her during the riot. It's why he stopped her from killing Joffrey, because it would mean her life too. With Arya, the dynamic works the other way. Arya has been reborn hard, so much so that she kind of freaks Sandor out sometimes. So by the time he tries a little tenderness, by the time he works up the nerve to talk to her about what she's feeling, Arya has decided to stop feeling it. I know she's dead, so what does it matter? All he can do is look at her. And he, he sense that surge of feeling, but it goes unsaid. So much is going unsaid here. It's a chapter all about absence. The chapter's final act is a strange one, almost a view into an alternative reality where Sandor and Arya could settle down into the pastoral life. Hard work for hard people, but a life removed from the intrigue of court and the field of war. It's a different version of being no one than Arya will experience with the Faceless Men. A pacifist, homebody no one. One who could theoretically be content and pray for health and a good harvest and avoid the High Lords playing the Game of Thrones. I like that, this alternate reality. Uh, I think it's Jamie who says about Sansa at one point, she should just, you know, marry, marry a baker, stay in the village, <laughs> pretend that she was never a Stark. That's kind of what Arya's being shown here, just like melt into this village, make this your home. But she hates it here, <laughs> precisely because it's so peaceful. She doesn't understand people like this anymore. Compare this to Arya in early in the story when she was like when they were uh, riding south through the neck and she would leave the trail to go explore and see what everyone was like. Or even earlier in this book, compare it to Arya in Stony Sept or the other settlements the Brotherhood encountered in their, their long, strange trip across the Riverlands. Arya still had a shred of hope left, even after losing her father, even after everything she saw and did at Harrenhal. Because she still had a goal, part of her family to get back to. And she had people with her that she liked, even cared about in the case of Gendry. And now all of that is gone. Catelyn is dead. Her only companion is even more misanthropic than she is. <laughs> and so other people no longer reflect Arya's own humanity back to her. They're just 
empty irritations. They're just mosquitoes that won't leave her alone. And what really bothers Arya about other people is that they haven't figured out that life is meaningless the way she's been forced to. The only way Arya can process other people now is as cowards. Oh, they can't look at Sandor's face the way she can. They can't accept violence and death into the hole where their hearts used to be, because they still have hearts there. Same with Craven, the horse. Arya is externalizing her own shame, her own inability to put her rage and pain somewhere. It all just festers. The most telling part is with the girl her age and her doll. Mm-hmm. That this is this is Arya's vengeance on her own gender, on her on the society that lied to her about what war really looks like. But like in the moment, she becomes a nightmare for that kid. Same with Sandor, who's not wrong about how Westeros works as he keeps telling Sansa, but Sandor is also a source of violence himself. And so you have this question of whether Arya will be able to avoid perpetuating the violence that has ruined her life. And because of all those tensions, that's why this is a dream that can't really last for Arya and Sandor. Sandor specifically, because the Hound is very much someone, as <laughs> and so is Arya, even if only Sandor knows it at the time. And it's worth highlighting the ways in which Sandor is impressing upon Arya. Her being a dick to that kid that follows her is just one instance, like you said, but I also like how she practices her needlework until she's too angry to continue, similar to how Sandor has described chopping wood earlier in the chapter. The ways that Sirio and Jockin and even Ned impressed upon Arya are pretty obvious, often overtly through catchphrases and the like. The Hound has impressed upon her in a more covert way, something more sublimated and angry than her other mentors, and one whose effects she won't realize and grapple with for some time to come. And you can see that running through this chapter with the question of of whether the hound has lost his belly for fighting. Mm-hmm. That's how everyone puts it. You've lost your belly. You've become a coward. Just like how Arya calls the horse Craven. The horse should have fought, Arya thinks. But why? <laughs> what would have been the point? The horse wouldn't have been able to save anyone, just like how Arya wouldn't, wouldn't have been able to save her mother, even if Sandor had let her run inside the castle. Like, Arya doesn't even know that that horse was a Stark horse. Like, that could have belonged to a Frey soldier and run away. So if that horse had stayed and fought, it would have been, would have been against <laughs> Arya's family. Like, she isn't really reacting to cowardice. It's helplessness. The knowledge that courage and strength and all the fine lessons she learned from Sirio Pharrell aren't enough to stop death, just as it wasn't enough for Sirio himself. But death didn't scare Sirio, and death doesn't scare Sandor either. He says, only fire. And that's what really happened at the Blackwater. As the reader knows, if that had been a a normal battle, normal in quotes, but you know, something like uh, the Green Fork or the Whispering Wood, Sandor wouldn't have broken, wouldn't have fled. He'd still probably be there in King's Landing serving Joffrey, and now Tommen. It was the wildfire that made the difference, because it snapped Sandor right back to his childhood, the pain Gregor inflicted on him. That's what made him vulnerable enough for that moment with Sansa to be possible. But Arya wasn't there, and the villagers don't know about any of that. Filter what happened to Sandor through the gender and class roles of Westeros, and it becomes cowardice. Oh, you didn't suffer a traumatic flashback and a nervous breakdown. <laughs> no, you just you just lost your belly for it. And that approach to violence, that football coach walk it off approach to violence, it causes a lot of problems in Westeros. More to the point, it prevents problems from being addressed because you can't even talk or think or feel honestly about them. Even here in this comparatively Disney village where violence is only a rumor and kids Arya's age can still be kids, even here they've heard that the Hound, once the most fearsome of the king's warriors, has turned and run with his tail between his legs. And not only that, but they also say a man like him brings blood with him. So it's the worst of both worlds for Sandor now. He's a threat because someone might come after him, but also he's no good at killing now, so he can't even keep you safe from that threat. 
Nothing Sandor could do about that except start killing people again, which he only does in self-defense at the crossroads, and then repents for it at the Quiet Isle, for a while anyway. He keeps his sword sharp just in case, and Arya notices. Even as she hates Sandor for killing Micah, the act of violence that earned him his place on her kill list that she tried to get him killed for with the Brotherhood, she also needs him to be violent, though, because that way the world still makes sense to her. If Sandor is trying to get away from that, if he's the kind of man who would use his axe to save her rather than kill her, just for example, then that means Arya can be vulnerable as well. And I think at this point it terrifies her to try and remember where the heart is. So, taking us into a foreshadowing and groundwork, we've touched on it, but obviously the big setup here is for Lady Stoneheart, that Arya is the one who makes this possible. The men that, that Nymeria sees running up, riding up at the end, are of course, as it turns out, the Brotherhood. Beric gives his, his final kiss to Catelyn, and she rises. And uh, we never actually directly see this scene. It's like described to us kind of in bits and pieces. We, we, pick, we pick up what happened. One of the reasons I really wish they'd done Stoneheart in the show was to be able to see that scene, like a cinematic gut punch, end of an episode, end of a season. Uh, that would have been a hell of a thing. Yeah, I was waiting for that at like the post-credits season four stinger to exactly. actually see that. Um, <laughs> and, you know, Catelyn's body would be thoroughly decomposed 10 episodes after the Red Wedding. So it could have been some gnarly makeup work and all that as well. Oh, I no think kidding. we really missed out for many reasons. I'm not <laughs> getting Lady Stoneheart. So uh, moving into a theory and discussion, the clansmen do come up here. We do hear that they are raiding local villages. They've come back to the mountains with all of the steel they got from Tyrion. So uh, do you think this is just here as kind of as kind of background detail, just an Easter egg for readers? Or do you think that they, they might actually prove important that they might come up again? Yeah, um, I'm actually going to argue that they're going to be very important or maybe right. not very important, but I do think um, <laughs> they do have relevance both narratively and thematically uh, to what's going to happen. I think narratively is mostly straightforward. I do think we're going to get e even deeper into the veil politics, at least in the first mm -hmm. half of the Winds of Winter. Um, so I do imagine what the mountain clans are up to. Um, is just going to play into Littlefinger's plans and what's going on with Sansa. Um, of course, you know, they're the mountain clans are harrowing the main road up into the mountains. That's very important for communication and all sorts of other things, commerce, I'm sure. Um, so I think it'll narratively matter how much. Who knows? But I think it will. Um, I think the bigger thing is thematically, um, because I really tie this to Tyrion unleashing the mountain clans on the veil, um, mm -hmm. kind of out of his anger at Liza Aaron following his trial by combat in uh, A Game of Thrones. And I think that's going to work as kind of like a moose bouche for what he's going to do with Daenerys when she returns to uh, Westeros. Because um, a lot of people have theorized or guessed that Tyrion is going to help push Danny um, to a more destructive ends, to more violent ends. And part of that's just going to be part of Tyrion's, you know, kind of cynical turn following the murder of his father and just kind of all the shit he's kind of unleashing kind of he's both evil and kind of an agent of chaos a little bit in a dance with dragons and you can see both of those things kind of working in tandem so i feel like this is kind of a teaser for the much bigger and more destructive violence that daenerys is going to unleash uh, later on perhaps in the end game of the story i like that it has the same kind of beats of, of vengeance and, and outrage from Tyrion because he really was treated horribly by Lysa for a crime he did not commit mm -hmm. and Lysa knows he did not commit that crime because she's the one who committed that <laughs> crime so yeah I would also be pissed off if I was if I was Tyrion but his uh, at one point he refers to it as his plan to reduce the Vale of Aaron, vale of Aaron to a smoking ruin mm -hmm. which is a little bit of an overreaction especially since there are a lot of people there who are not named Lysa so definitely I could see that as, as uh, Tyrion's arc in miniature 
and uh, with respect to how he handles uh, Daenerys and King's Landing. And in terms of uh, how it plays in uh, plot-wise, it's it's interesting because, uh, yeah, Littlefinger has all these little plots he's up to in the Vale, trying to win over lords to his side, bribing, corrupting people. But you got to think Sansa's ultimate narrative arc is up and out of the Vale before too much longer, or mm-hmm. at least that's supposed to be the plan. And then we lose our POV in the Vale. So I could see it. I could see them, the clansmen being involved in, in some sort of chaos that breaks out, some sort of distraction that leads to Sansa's identity being revealed, or Harry the Air has to die in some spectacular fashion because <laughs> he's, he's, such, he's such a prick and is a, is a little literal red herring, as people have pointed out, with his, his red sigil and his last name of Harding. So he's got to die somehow, so maybe the clansmen get him. Uh, I think even even if it's just like uh, the the Knights of the Vale get to the north, everyone's behind Sansa, and then the clansmen attack behind them once all the knights are gone <laughs> and burn all the food and shit. I think that could be really funny mm-hmm. and be a nice uh, a kind of a gut punch to, to everyone who went with Sansa. I think that could be pretty effective. Uh, but it's one of those things that George definitely may have not had a plan for at first, but wanted to keep in his back pocket and wanted to have wanted that to have some kind of integrity. So every so often he reminds you, remember those guys? They're still there. They're just hanging out <laughs> off page. They're hanging out. They're all getting together. So that is going to wrap us up for episode on A Storm of Swords, Aria 12. Uh, thank you so much for listening. As always, if you want to drop us a rating or a review on your podcast app of choice, we really appreciate that. It helps people find us. You can check on check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where our patrons get benefits including uh, early access to our regular episodes and exclusive episodes every month. You can follow us on Twitter and uh, Blue Sky at Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F, or shoot us an email at Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. And you can find me on Twitter and Blue Sky, et cetera, at Port Quentin. And I'm Manu at Nuclear Bomb. You can find me on Twitter, Blue Sky, TikTok, and Letterboxd if you'd like. So uh, next up on coming up next on the Nauticast, my next Fever Dream episode for patrons covering George R. R. Martin's 1982 a vampire novel, a chapter at a time, a chapter every month for our $5 and above patrons. Our next episode covering chapter 28. That's going to be out next week on our Patreon. A couple weeks after that, our next Star Wars episode for patrons, our second one on episode 5, a.k.a. Empire Strikes Back, a.k.a. the good one. That's going to be out in a, in a few weeks' time, in a couple weeks' time. And then in between, we'll be back in Westeros. We're heading back to King's Landing as Tyrion is put on trial for killing Joffrey, the noblest child the gods ever put on this earth, as Pycelle calls him. Maybe the single most infuriating line in the entire series. I know there are worse things, but something about the way Pycelle says that in both book and show. Of all the things that made me mad in A Storm of Swords, that one just, like, (laughs) made me boil over. (laughs) Not the the endless massacres of the innocent. No, this this is the moment. And we're very excited to announce we'll be having uh, two, not one, but two special guests on for this episode. Our friends Clint and Mary from the Learned Hands podcast are going to be coming on over since they're, they'll bring the great lawyerly perspective to one of the most uh, lawyerly of chapters in the Song of Ice and Fire. That's going to be so great. So uh, thank you again for listening, and we will see you, all four of us, we'll see you next time in Westeros for A Storm of Swords, Tyrion 9. <laughs>